mess with your mind or something They tryna play with your grind or something They wanna see you back off of your calling Yeah, they tryna mess with your sign or something For lack of a vision, them people could perish Commit to the climb, even when it hurts Only two things in life you could control Is how you spend time and how hard you work So hard work, God first, yeah Hard work, God first, yeah Hard work, God first, yeah To the day I'm in the dirt, yeah Jesus Christ is Lord, yeah I know who I serve, yeah When my life was hard, yeah my prayers were heard, yeah. So hard work got first, yeah. Hard work got first, yeah. Hard work got first, yeah. Today I'm in the dirt, yeah. Jesus Christ is Lord, yeah. I know who I serve, yeah. When my life was hard, yeah. Oh, even then my prayers were heard, yeah. She said, Z, you work too much. Since I was a kid, I knew I was the one. I hit the payment, I keep showing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Truth to Faith podcast. I'm your host, Cliff Steven. If you don't know me, I'm a dad, I'm a Christian. I was born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts in the Old Colony Projects. Um, I want to welcome all the Truth of Faith 5%ers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit the follow, comment, like, and share. And all the new guests, welcome. I appreciate you coming here and uh, spending your time with us. We got a, some guests for next weekend. It's going to be Ron Moorhead and Paul Stubbs. Um, and tonight we got a great guest. Uh, author Brian Gadawa, he wrote Leviathan, Behemoth, Giant Chaos, Monsters in the Bible, Chronicles of the Nephilim, uh, Moses Against the Gods of Egypt, Chronicles of the Watches, and Tyrant, Rise of the Beast, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and so much more as I'm starting to understand. How you doing, Brian? Great, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate your time. Um, so... I, before we get into it, actually, um, will you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, where they can find you, your social media, your website, stuff like that? Sure. My name is Brian Gadawa, and I am a best-selling author on Amazon for uh, basically for Bible novels, but I also write theological novels as well that go along with the Bible novels, if that makes sense. Um, I, you know, years ago, I stumbled onto um, Michael Heiser. And he was a, he's a, the late scholar, uh, Michael Heiser. And he had, he was an evangelical scholar who wrote about the divine council, the watcher paradigm and, and the, the Nephilim and these, these supernatural components of the old Testament. And it changed, it transformed my life so much so that I began writing novels about it and sort of retelling Bible stories in the Bible where giants appear or where the watchers appear we could go into more detail about what those are, but these are the supernatural components, archangels, et cetera. And so I started writing those years ago and they become best-selling um, uh, series on, on, um, on uh, Amazon called Chronicles of the Nephilim, Chronicles of the Watchers, and Chronicles of the Apocalypse, as you've already mentioned. And um, my website is gadawa.com. You know, if you want to go find out more information about me, there's a ton of cool stuff there. Uh, but my books are are all on, exclusively on Amazon, so you can just go there and find out information as well on uh, the, the material we're going to be talking about tonight. Excellent, thank you. So, um, how can I ask you how long you've been a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Like, was you raised a Christian, or did you go through trauma trials? How did you become a Christian? 
Yeah, I didn't have trauma. On, um, I was going to say, unfortunately, but uh, fortunately, I didn't have trauma in some ways Amen. because I know a lot of people, you know, it's it's great to hear testimonies of God delivering people out of drugs and crime and all that. That's that's great. But I was just a typical average kid. I was pretty much of a good kid by most worldly standards and when I was in high school. Didn't do drugs, didn't even smoke, didn't uh, sleep around or anything like that. But um, I was an artist and I was seeking to uh, find meaning and purpose in my life by maybe someday becoming famous. You know, I thought if I, if I could be a famous artist like Michelangelo, you know, then I would have meaning and, and, and significance to my life. You know, I really wanted that. But but um, I the the reality of death was something that had always sort of lingered over me, not in a suicidal way, but just in a in a. In a um, uh, as an artist, I think a lot about that, you know, and 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 I see the reality of death around me, and I I wonder how does that affect my art and my in, my stories, and it forced me to really realize the 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 brevity of my life and the shortness of life, and uh and the the as as the book of Ecclesiastes says, the vanity of vanities, all is vanity and chasing after the wind, and when you realize that, you 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 ask yourself, you know what. What is it that's lacking my life? If there's some God out there, how come he's so distant? You know, what? what is, it doesn't make sense. Wouldn't he make himself more, you know, uh, apparent to us? That kind of a thing. And and I was just basically taken to a, um, a church that had youth ministry and they did a lot of the arts and they had rock music and stuff like that. But it helped make the, helped tell me about the truth of the Bible in a way that related to me and in a way that was very creative as well. And I, I basically you know, became a Christian when I realized that, that, that alienation that I felt from a God out there was because of my own sin. And, and I needed to be, a my, that sin needed to be forgiven. And if I wanted to come in back into a relationship with a holy, perfect God, right. Amen. And of course that was the point of Jesus's death on the cross. And that re revelation um, was just something that I saw as being truth. It struck me as being true. I didn't have a big emotional uh, transformation or a display or anything. It just, I'd been a, a seeker after truth and the truth of it made sense. And I just committed my life to Christ. And then God began to change me from the inside out. That was way back in, in the days of high school. And then he transformed my art to the point where I then found a true meaning and purpose in the eternal kingdom of God that then I wanted to express through my art. And, and over the many years I've been seeking to do that. And in the most, I started out as a visual artist, but I ended up becoming a storyteller. And I started actually in Hollywood with my storytelling. And um, I wrote a lot of, um, I wrote some movies there. And and um, my, my first movie, which is still my favorite of all is uh, To End All Wars, which stars Kiefer Sutherland. It's on Amazon Prime, you can see it now still. Um, but, you know, and then I made some more movies after that. But since then, I also um, was writing novels. About 13 years ago, I started writing novels. And that sort of changed my life. And I became um, much more successful with my novels. And that's what I've been pursuing lately, where, um, you know, I've, I've been, uh, like I said, yeah, writing these novels. And, and But what I do along with them is, which we'll get to the book <laughs> tonight that you wanted to talk about, which is Leviathan and Behemoth, uh, the giant um, monsters of the Bible. Well, um, because I wanted to retell Bible stories, I knew that my audience was mostly going to be Christians um, and, and maybe some Jews who would be interested in the Old Testament stories and such. But I knew that that uh, Christians are uh, very, when you're writing about the Bible, especially if you're going to write novels, 
you know, you, you better be very true to the Bible text. You know, if you play too much with imagination, they're going to hate it and, uh, you know, call you a heretic and blasphemy. Right. And so I wanted, I had a high regard for the Bible stories, but I also know that there's a lot of theology in there, a lot of symbolism. And I've studied a lot of the symbolism of which one is Leviathan. And, um, I've incorporated a lot of that into my Bible stories. And because I did that, it's sort of like, you know, trying to retell these stories and show and, and, and depicting the, what is it like behind the veil of the spiritual world? Cause the Bible shows us some glimpses into the spiritual world, right? But it doesn't show us a lot. And so if you want to tell stories in that spiritual realm, you know, you're going to have to, um, you're going to have to, uh, um, fictionalize a little bit. Right. But my goal yeah. was, was to stay as true to the Bible as possible fill in the gaps, you know, uh, tell the stories of what we do know, but fill in the gaps of what we don't know. You know, for instance, you you hear about Moses' birth, then you hear about him 40 years later, then, you know, then he leaves Egypt and you hear about him 40 years later when he's in Midian and comes back. So what happens in all those intervening 80 years, right? And if you're going to tell that, that story, I wanted to be consistent with the Bible, but I still knew that Christians are going to go, hey, uh, I was going to apply a lot of this amazing imagery, such as Leviathan, in my storytelling. And um, and so I wanted to provide the biblical research and the historical research behind my my novels. And I was inspired, actually, by Michael Crichton. You know, Michael Crichton, the late Michael Crichton, he, he was one of my favorite writers, and he would write science fiction stories, of course, Jurassic Park, etc. But what he often did was he would have an appendix at the back of his book where he would talk about the real science that his fiction was based on. And mm -hmm. I was, I always loved that. And so I kind of did the same thing with each of my first novels of Chronicles of the Nephilim. I would put an appendix at the back with my Bible research behind it. And in wow. these later years, as I continue to write more novels, I've gotten so much research material that I would, I often now I release two books. I release the novel and then a companion book that's a little, a lot smaller, but it, it, it carries the biblical research, right? And so um, that's what uh, Leviathan and Behemoth is. Leviathan uh, and Behemoth is a, a, a short theological book explaining the symbolism of Leviathan and Behemoth in the Bible and where I got it as a, um, basically as a symbol, a spiritual symbol of chaos, uh, the sea dragon of chaos and how that, that uh, symbolism represents a lot of how God interacts with the world. And so that's sort of the origin of, of that book in the so, context. So you, you, you don't believe they were actually animals. Cause I know some people will make that argument. And um, before I, I wanted to say like what you said about how you became a Christian, you know, I, I think that takes a lot of guts to not have that big spiritual thing. I, I did have that. And I did come from a lot of trauma and stuff. And you know, me and my daughter, we were eating lunch today. She sat down and she put a bowl beside her. And I go, what are you doing? She goes, well, that's for Jesus. I, I welcomed him to come eat with us. And she's sitting and she, I was like, pumpkin, I'm sorry, but it doesn't work like that. Well, maybe, you know, in the Bible, angels come and they eat. I'm like, I know. I'm like, I don't know what to tell her, you know, because she knows that I seen God. So she wants to see him. I'm like, it don't work that way. We're kind of all on our own path. But sure. You know, I just, I love that your faith, you know, that that's a good faith. That's beautiful. But um, yeah, you, you, go ahead. God Sorry. uses all of us, right. For, to reach different people in different ways. And my revelation was you can be, 
you can look good on the outside. You could be a good boy or a good girl, right? But the Bible tells us that all of us have the same wicked, sinful heart. And that, yeah, I may not have murdered someone, but Jesus said, if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart. Wow. I, I didn't have, I didn't fornicate. I didn't commit adultery with anyone. But Jesus said, if you lust after a woman who's not your wife, you've committed right. adultery in your heart. So I came to realize that, I had broken all of God's Ten Commandments just like anybody else, if uh, outwardly, if not inwardly. Um, but the biggest sin of all is, of course, pride. And C.S. Lewis talks about a lot about how pride can be, in a way, pride can be considered the original sin out of which all other sins come. You know, that desire for man to be the the captain of his own life, you know, his own definer of reality, which is like being your own God, right? And so I had that in my soul, which makes me just as black-hearted, just as dark-hearted as any other uh, evil, wicked sinner, if that makes sense. And so I realized that it's it's a it's it's actually a fraud uh, for people to think that anyone's really good because if you compare yourself with other men, other women, yeah, maybe. But when you, in the Bible you're comparing yourself with God, and when you do that, nobody comes up clean. Absolutely Amen. nobody. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. So true. So, so you don't you think Leviathan and Behemoth is actually sometimes a spiritual thing? Yeah. So, um, that was part of my purpose for writing the book because I know that there are different interpretations of Leviathan, and some Christians believe that he's a dinosaur, you know, some kind of ancient water dinosaur or something like that. You know, they'll they'll point to like Job, you know, where there's the chapter in Job about about him. Um, but if you do a study on it, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was I wanted to look everywhere the Leviathan shows up in the Bible and um, bring it together to make sense of, of what it, what he's doing there, you know? And so if you, if you, um, if you look at Genesis, for example, you know, if we start from the beginning, uh, Genesis one, where he's, you know, God is creating all these things on the fifth day is when it says, you know, um, God said, let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly in the air. And God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. Well, if you look at the Hebrew behind that term, great sea creatures, and different Bible translations use different words, it's actually the, the Hebrew word that means dragon. So it's basically saying sea dragons, and the word is tanin. And, um, and that's a very particular... Uh, so... Uh, it's important to understand that because you have to understand that modern translators import their own biases. And in the, you know, in the ancient world, you know, dragons was a concept that they, that they understood as being something that is real and certainly something that could also be symbolic as well. So these sea dragons, which were basically, they didn't know because the creatures were the deep, they hadn't explored the seas like we have. And so, you know, they, they considered them, a lot of them to be dragons, but there's a important purpose for putting that that word in Genesis because there is a whole theological thread throughout the Bible of this dragon motif and um and it transforms later but it you know I think that the Moses here is 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 showing how God created everything even these dragons that we consider to be dangerous and um uh, you know monstrous right? Um, God created those and put them in the sea, in the seas. And so it shows God's omnipotent power. Well, at that time in the ancient world, you have to understand that all the ancient cultures around the Jews, 
um, including Canaan, in which the Jews were 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 living at at some point, but also in Egypt, they all believed in what's called the sea dragon of chaos, and they all had this this concept that um, the the seas were represented chaos because they were dark, forbidding, and unknown. Right, ships would get shipwrecked, and you the deep was mysterious. And um, a lot of the 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 language that was used in all in all of these uh, cultures, including in the Bible, is the word the abyss. The abyss is the fathomless deep, the mysterious deep. And the concept of the abyss, if you look into the Bible, it actually it's not just the the sea. It's not just a metaphor or a, another reference to the sea. It was actually a belief in the 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 seawaters that also go down into Hades ultimately, which is where the uh, the underworld, right? So the abyss leads you to the underworld as well. So there's this whole, you know, picture that's that's going on there. Well, anyway, my point is, is that all around them in Canaan, there was uh, the belief in the sea dragon of chaos that Baal, the storm god, uh, would, would overcome. And he represented chaos and the notion in general throughout all these... Uh, nations, including Babylon, right? There was Tiamat, the sea dragon that was uh, uh, um, not destroyed. I was going to say, yeah, it was destroyed. But I mean, he was he was overcome by Marduk, the high god Marduk. And that Marduk then ripped the sea uh, Tiamat in half and created the heavens and the earth. That's their, their symbolism that they're using. And so all these nations understood that as this sea dragon of chaos. So the question comes, well, did the Jews have a different idea? Well, yeah, I think they did, but they also had a, a familiarity with that same concept. But now in, in Genesis 1, you, will, you know, if you go throughout the Bible, you're going to see that this notion of the sea dragon is used in different ways. And one of the ways is, like in Genesis, Genesis 1, the, the intent is to say, look, God is the creator and that monster of chaos that everyone thinks is scary and dangerous is like a pet to Yahweh, the creator, right? So for instance, there'll be passages like um, Psalm 104.26, where he's describing just creation and he goes and he describes the sea and he says, there go the ships and over the sea and Leviathan, which you Yahweh formed to play in it. So now that word Leviathan is a word ref that references the uh, uh, the sea dragon. And in Canaan, they use the same term, Leviathan, uh, of the sea dragon of chaos. And so what, what the author here is saying, like, Yahweh is so great and mighty that this monster that everyone is fearful of uh, you know, that, that, that the God Baal has to fight and overcome to Yahweh, he created Leviathan and he's like a little pet playing in the ocean. Right? So there's yeah. this notion through several scriptures that gives that impression, but then there's another way that Leviathan is used in the Bible. And this is the more fearsome way. And this is the more symbolic way that, um, that I'm, that I'm referring to, you know, and, um, there, there's many different passages about this, but let me just pick one of them, for example. Um, you know, one of my favorites is, um, well, let's start with Isaiah, okay? I'll do Isaiah 51. Um, no, on second thought, I will do <laughs> Psalm 74. 
So Psalm 74 is another um, passage where the, the Leviathan shows up. Um, if we, 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 we can get to Job, that's the classic one everyone thinks about, but, um, in order to make I ask you sense, a quick question, sure. So is Leviathan, you know, the movie, um, what was it? Uh, gods of Egypt. And when the God that was on the boat, he kept shooting that big monster. Would that be similar to that? I don't, I did. I have not seen the movie, but if they're being consistent with, uh, Egyptian mythology that that would be that would be the counterpart, the Egyptian counterpart. But the Egyptians, they had a sea serpent that was called Apophis, That's and Apophis yeah. was that okay. sea serpent that took the place of Leviathan. Sure. So okay. this notion of the sea serpent is something that we're going to see in in a lot of the language of the Bible. So, for example, um, uh, in 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 Psalm seventy four, you see. Um, the the author, excuse me, is writing about the glory of Yahweh. And he's going to make a reference to the Red Sea parting. And we all know that story, right? And the Red Sea parting. And that's where God shows his power over the sea. So right there, you've got this notion already coming. Yahweh is showing power over the seas. But then there is going to be this battle imagery that sometimes they call it chaos kumpf. Theologians call it the chaos kumpf, which means this fight with chaos. Um, and and so sometimes that motif is in the Bible. And this is one of those cases where it is. So if you read Psalm 74, verse 12, he says, God, my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Then he says, you, Yahweh, you divided the sea by your might. That's the Red Sea parting, right? He said, you broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. And that, that word sea monsters is that word dragons. Wow. Then the next verse, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. Oh, there it is, the sea dragon again. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we see here that there is this battle motif you know, Yahweh is crushing the heads of Leviathan. He breaks the heads of the sea monsters. There it is, this, this ancient Near Eastern concept of your creator God is the one who, who, who fights the seas, pushes back the chaos and the chaos of the sea dragon to create his, his covenant order. That's, that's sort of the motif that I think the Bible really emphasizes. So Leviathan is another word, a specific word for a specific, you know, sea dragon. But here's the interesting thing. It's like, if you, you know, if you read the Exodus, there was no sea monster there, right? Uh, and, and, and there was no description of him giving him as food to the creatures of the wilderness. What is that about? Well, this is another motif where you see in all the other ancient Near Eastern religions, it's this idea, and in throughout the Bible, the idea is the symbol of God destroying the dragon, the sea dragon of chaos, and he gives him as food for victory, this is this is a, this is a common motif, you know. They, sometimes the ancient world and and biblical authors will talk about, you know, uh, uh, they will have a battle, and you know they they will give the flesh of their enemies to the birds of the air, you know, which is you know there's a literalness to that because the dead bodies get get eaten by the bird the birds of prey, right? Yeah. But that that notion of leaving the bodies in the wilderness from a battle, right? 
that's what's being played on here. In the same way, God will leave that body of the chaos dragon in, you know, in the wilderness to be eaten because he overcomes chaos. And then it continues to describe in verse 15, you, Yahweh, split open the springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Okay, split open springs and brooks. That might be reference to something. You dried up ever-flowing streams. How, what do streams have to do with the sea, right? This is all symbolic language of just showing God is, Yahweh is the uh is the God of power over the waters. The waters represent that mysterious chaos that is closing in on humans, right? And, and God is the one who overcomes that on their behalf. And then, very, then it says this at the end, yours is the day, yours also the night. This is speaking of Yahweh. You, Yahweh, have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You fixed the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter, etc. So now we see creation language. It's like he's you just you know you establish the heavens and the lights and the, like he's creating the universe right. This is whenever you see um, this creation language throughout a lot of of the Bible, you have to understand that it's used as a metaphor, creating the the earth, the heavens and the earth is a metaphor for the covenant. God creates the covenant with His people, which is like He's establishing the cosmos. He's pl placing everything in its place. And that's what the covenant represents to, to Israel. And so when God brought them through the Red Sea, he brought them through chaos. And what did he do? He brought them in the Sinai where he gave the law and the law was his covenant of order. A covenant is the order he's creating out of the chaos. Do you see how that all works? And that's sort of the motif that I think happens a lot throughout, throughout scripture. Uh, but that's you know one, one particular case. Now, before we move on, I want to say, Looking back at the sea monsters, it says, you broke the heads of sea monster, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. The word for heads of Leviathan in Hebrew is plural, meaning Leviathan has multiple heads. That's where you get this notion of the, the multiple-headed sea dragon. Um, and wow. again, people say, oh, that could be real. God can create that. Well, yeah, God could create anything he wants. But but my point is, is when you start to see these all have a, 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 a his cultural context that was common with their neighbors as well, but they're using the same imagery, the same concepts, but they're saying, no, our God, Yahweh, is the creator, not your God. Our God creates order out of chaos. Our God crushes the plural heads of Leviathan. And the, the, the Leviathan in Canaan had seven heads, particularly. And if you look up the Baal, the Baal epic, and you hear, you you read about Baal um, uh, defeating Leviathan, the sea dragon. He has seven heads, the encircler with seven heads. And so, again, this is a common motif of symbolism. That's all it is. This isn't Israel worshiping pagan gods or copying. For, it's just they use the same symbols, but they meet, they they employ them to to elevate their god over the over the other gods of of Canaan, right? And so that um, that's something that that always intrigued me when I first learned it. So Leviathan has multiple heads. So here's the idea of God crushing the heads of Leviathan. Now remember, I just said he did this at the Red Sea, right? And there's there's other passages that refer to this same Red Sea crossing. Like for instance, we can go there eventually. Isaiah 51, same language, parting the seas. 
piercing the dragon, cutting the the dragon in, into pieces, right? Um, and and there's another name that's used of Leviathan. It's called Rahab, Rahab, and Rahab is another. Like I say, in the Bible, you'll have multiple names for one character, right? Like even even um, um, humans have multiple names sometimes, you know, and uh, they're called different things by different people. And in in Isaiah 51, it's it does the same thing, but it talks about uh, God establishing the heavens and the earth at the Red Sea, uh, and and it calls Leviathan Rahab, but it's the it's the sea dragon, and so there you have the same motif going on. You know, I mean, I could go there, but um, yeah, let, I'll just keep moving on. So the next component of this is so. On second thought, I will go there. I will go there. Isaiah 51. So if you go to Isaiah 51, starts in verse nine, but you know, it talks about, oh God, my you are my arm, the arm of the Lord is, is, and the arm of the Lord means his power. It says, was it not you, Yahweh, who cut Rahab in pieces or Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? So again, you got to do a study on Rahab, Rahab. You'll see that it's used interchangeably with Leviathan. You just have to trust me in this. By the book, you'll see where it is. But then it says, was it not you, Yahweh, who dried up the sea, the waters of the deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed Israel to pass over? There it is again. It's describing the, the cutting Rahab, the sea dragon, in pieces when God brought his people through Exodus. Then down further in that same passage in verse 16, verse 15, I'm the Lord God. I, I put words in your mouth. I've established the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth saying to Zion, you are my people. So again, it uses creation language to describe God creating his covenant with his people. It's like he's creating the heavens and the earth when he's creating his covenant with his people. So that's that's one motif. But it's important to understand another way reason why uh, Leviathan or Rahab is understood as symbolic, not literal, is because it describes him as being destroyed and cut up into pieces at the Red Sea, right? Well, guess what? There are other passages where it's Leviathan is described as still alive much later. So if wow. you go to, for example, um, I, Isaiah 27, 1. This is a, a, a prophecy of, a, of an eschatological prophecy. And when it occurs, we, we don't have to focus on it at this point. It's just knowing that Isaiah is writing this. So it's obviously in the, in the future from Isaiah, right? And Isaiah happened long after Moses, right? And what does Isaiah say? He says that in that day, he's talking about an eschatological day of the Lord. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So it's clearly a symbol of chaos because he was destroyed at the Red Sea, but then he's going to be destroyed again in the future. The point is, is as you see him in other passages, even in Job, he becomes that symbol of, of chaos. And it's interesting that the, the description of Leviathan in, in Isaiah 27, Leviathan the fleeing serpent, Leviathan the twisting serpent, it's the same exact language that is used of Leviathan the twisting serpent in Canaanite language, in, I'm sorry, in Canaanite um, 
epics and myths and stuff, right? Well, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, Israelites are just copying the myths, but they've been influenced and by their surrounding cultures and they're using common language, but they're subverting it. And they're basically saying, Yahweh is the one who's going to destroy Leviathan, not Baal. Baal is not God. Yahweh's God. He's going to destroy in the future. He's going to get rid of that chaos that is encroaching upon us. And as we know in life and in the Bible, even when God has a victory with his people, what happens over time? Evil encroaches back. Chaos starts encroaching back on the order that God established. So until the final end of time, there's still going to be that chaos and order struggle that is going on. And so that's why you see this struggle in the Bible back and forth. And Leviathan becomes that, that symbolic dra dragon of chaos that embodies that struggle, if that makes sense. Wow. Yeah. That, wow. That was, that was amazing. Wow. It's funny. Cause I read, I remember reading some of that, you know, and sometimes the old Testament for me is hot. I ain't going to lie. I usually stick to the new Testament. Jesus is talking, but Hearing you break it down, you know, I go back in my mind to when I read it and how it makes so much more sense. Yeah, yeah. So, but I do want to address a, a popular, so, you know, a popular understanding of, if I can find it, oh, I don't think I wrote it down here. That's funny. Um, Job. So there's this big, long passage on Job. And I talk about this in my book as well, where it describes the Leviathan in detail. But um before I do, I just want to point out in Job 26, 12, it talks about this same motif I've been talking about. It says, by God's power, he stilled the sea. There it is again. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Remember how I said he shattered the sea dragon's head and Leviathan's head. He shattered Rahab. They're used interchangeably. By his wind, the heavens were made. His hand, Yahweh's hand, pierced the fleeing serpent. There it is again. All that language of the fleeing, twisting serpent of the sea connected to the Red Sea, God's covenant, is used interchangeably with Rahab and Leviathan. So when you do read about uh, Leviathan later on in Job, where, where is that? 40, 41, right? Well, we won't get in behemoth. That's a whole nother issue, but, but um, uh, maybe if we have time later, but um, so Job 41, can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord, et cetera, et cetera. Now this is the context of, of Job having gone through his, you know, personal journey of pain and lashing out at God. And then now God is humbling him and he's saying, look, you, you know, you're complaining you're asking me to make account of why I do what I do in this world, which includes your suffering, right? And God's turning it back on him and saying, uh, excuse me, you know, who's God here? Where were you when I created the earth? That, you know, and so then when he gets to, oh, I think I lost my place here. Hold on a second here. This is, I'm having some weird Bible problems here. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, the uh, software is going weird on me. Oh, I hate that. Okay, we're almost there. All right. So when we get to the 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 Leviathan passage, you have to understand that uh yeah, he talks a lot about God creating the earth, heavens and the earth, etc. And like I said, you know, Leviathan becomes this 
sea dragon for all they know maybe he is real right because they don't really know because they haven't explored the deep like we have and i really have to apologize my i've got i've got crazy so software problems going on here okay that is so weird okay whatever um all right, so so when he gets to describing this Leviathan, people say, well, certainly that's describing an actual creature because it's so detailed. God wouldn't describe a myth that way or a symbol that way. Well, actually, that's not true. There are a lot of examples of myths that are explained and described in detail. You know, not myths, um, symbols in the Bible. You know, when you look at Daniel, look at all the descriptions of Daniel of the symbols in Daniel. He describes all the beasts with all their, you know, iron teeth and all this stuff, right? And has a head of lion and the body of a bear and all this stuff. Well, just because it's going into detail doesn't mean it's not a symbol. The detail is an expression of the, the meaning of that symbol. And when he's describing Leviathan here, if you're going to take all this stuff as meaning a literal creature, you're going to be in trouble because... Um, what you're going to say is, uh, yeah, it talks about how, you know, God creates him. He plays with him as with a bird or, or I'm sorry, he's, he's mocking Job and saying, can you treat Leviathan like a pet? Like I do? No, of course not. Of course not. And he goes through all these descriptions, um, who can strip off his outer garment, who can open the doors of his face? His back is made of rows of shields. All right. He's describing those scales. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. Well, that's actually not real. That that's there's no such creature that can have scales where no air can come between them. That wouldn't work. But what's the what's the meaning of that? It's saying nothing can pierce this this monster. Nothing can. There's no kink in the armor, right? That you can get through to him. Well, there's no such real creature like that on Earth. But there's something else. It says in verse 18 of Job 41, his Leviathan's sneezings flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Well, if you look at what he's saying, the next verse, out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostril comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame comes forth from his mouth. This is a fire-breathing sea dragon. Now, people say, well, that's okay. God can create that. Well, yeah, again, in, in a sense, God could create anything he wants. But this is more indications of the, mo the symbolic motif that's used throughout the Bible and the idea of uh, breathing fire. It really, if you think about it, it's kind of nonsense to, to think that a sea-going creature breathes fire underwater. That doesn't work. <laughs> and smoke doesn't work. That's, there's no such thing as smoke in the, in the you know. So the, in other words, it's, if you take it literally, it's really nonsensical. But it's symbolic, and the symbolism of you know fire breathing is always a symbol of judgment. God talks about how He breathes fire and judgment upon people, right? So this notion of fire breathing dragon—it's this idea that He brings forth. He is a He is a, an instrument of God's judgment, uh, and that's what that's what God does, um, you know, with people. And uh, His heart is hard as a millstone. Um, he. Uh, Whatever. So, you know, um, on earth is not as like a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. That's Leviathan. Now, some people have tried to say, oh, you know, it's a, and there's no, there's no creature in history that, that remotely comes close to this description. 
And you know, people can always say, "Well, we just haven't discovered it yet in the in in the, in the uh, fossil record." Okay, fine. But but my point is, is that all these hints are uh, or descriptions are hints or indications of the symbolism of what Leviathan is. And then when you look at all the other passages through the Bible, and there are many of them, I, I chronicle them all in my my novel. That's where the symbolism comes out more clearly and helps you understand. Well. Everywhere else, he's clearly used as a symbol or a metaphor for this chaos. So, um, you know, you have to you have to understand Job and and this description of Leviathan in that context. But I still have no problem if you just think of it as well. Maybe you know, uh, as far as the Hebrews were, knew, you know, a, a deep sea sea dragon monster could be that symbol of the mightiest creature in creation that we cannot overcome on land, right? Us humans. Uh, even the ships in the sea get crashed by the Leviathan, right? So their perception of it was, even if it is real, it still represents that creature that uh, is, is the greatest thing that man can't overcome, but Yahweh can. But again, even if you believe that in a literal sense, he, it's clearly being used as a symbol in these other passages that we've already gone over. So that's that's sort of a, you know, an initial um, addressing of that. Is is Leviathan literal or is he symbolic? Well, it could be both. Sure, if you want to understand it as both. But when you're reading these passages, you have to to face the fact that you know Isaiah 27 and and um, uh, Psalm 74 and Isaiah 51 are clearly symbolism. So that's what they're they're doing. But there's another obvious symbol, symbolic motif that the Bible uses of Leviathan. Sometimes Le Leviathan, because it's the sea monster of chaos, the sea dragon of chaos, dragons are those scary monsters, God will sometimes call his enemies, actual historical enemies, like Pharaoh, he'll call them, call them a dragon or a sea dragon or Leviathan or Rahab, right? Or Rahab, yeah. right? And so let me just go uh, give you a couple examples. Well, first of all, we already saw God has called Egypt in a way. He's called you could you could see the the Red Sea crossing that we went over in in Psalm uh, uh, Psalm seventy four. You know you could you could see that what did God do? He he crushed the Egyptians in order to free the Israelites and take them through the sea. So you could see the Leviathan as being the sea dragon of chaos as being the symbol of Egypt was the chaos out of which Israel was taken for God to create his order. And, and there are other passages that make that more explicit. Like for example, um, in Isaiah 30 verses set verse seven, he's talking about the Oracle. Isaiah is talking about Egypt. And this is in a time period of, of Isaiah, which is, you know, around the time of the exile, I think. And in, in Isaiah 30, verse 7, he says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. He's, he's basically describing Egypt. And he says, therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. So that's kind of like the, uh, you know, sometimes the alligator could be considered, or crocodiles could be considered sea dragons, right? And they're like sitting still in the water. And, and then he uses that even more distinctly when he says, let's see, when he calls... Um, where did I find this? Um, oh, there he is. Ezekiel 32. In Ezekiel 32, 
the Pharaoh of Egypt is called the sea dragon. Um, and this is a prophecy. And it says, son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the Pharaoh in the days of Ezekiel. He says, you consider, oh, Pharaoh, you consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are a dragon in the seas. And the word dragon is tanin there. And that's that, that notion of, uh, you know, the, the, um, this chaos element. The lion was like the king of the animals and he ruled the order. But, but Yahweh's saying, you know, you don't rule order, you rule chaos. You're like a sea dragon, right? And you burst forth in the rivers. And of course, Egypt had this, you know, they were very familiar with crocodiles and such. So maybe God's sort of likening him to a crocodile, but he's using the, 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 the word dragon to describe, to describe Pharaoh. Trouble the waters with your feet and foul, you foul their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, I will throw my net over you with a host of many peoples. God is saying this to Pharaoh, the dragon. I'm going to throw my net over you. I will haul you up in my dragnet like they do to a, to a crocodile or to yeah. a dragon. And I will cast you on the ground on the open field. I will fling you and I will cause all the birds of the heaven to settle on you and will gorge the beasts of the whole earth with you. Your flesh, I will strew your flesh upon the mountains. There it is again. There's that imagery of God drawing out the sea dragon, the dragon that's in the sea, and casting him out to the land and giving him as food for the vultures and the birds and all that. Because this was a common motif of, of a description of God judging a people, or in this case, a particular ruler, Pharaoh. And I think this was... Um, I don't know which Pharaoh it was. Uh, maybe it was Pharaoh Nico of Egypt. I don't know. But in my book, I, I go into that in more detail. But this is, again, just um, another example of how the dragon and the sea dragon is used as a symbol to describe the enemies of God. Why? Because they bring chaos. They are chaos creatures. The sea represents the chaos that God is going to rescue his people from. He parts the sea, right, to create his covenant order. And sometimes those, those leaders are, are described as dragons that God's going to conquer as well. So this is how you can see the many different ways in which Leviathan in the Bible is used as a symbol, whether it's a generic symbol of, of chaos or of specific individuals who are enemies of God. Wow. Wow, that was you laid that out good. We're not wow. done yet. I learned wow, that's so here's a cool thing. That, that's cool. Book of Revelation. Remember the and everyone admits these are obvious symbols too, right? The beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and guess how many heads? Seven heads. Revelation 13, 1, with 10 diadems on its whores and blasphemous names on its heads. Everybody admits that this is a symbolic of, now you can, we won't go into what it, what interpretation it, it refers to, because I just want to make the point that here's another case where John, the apostle, draws from his Hebrew prophetic past. The prophets, excuse me, used Leviathan and the multiple headed sea dragon as their symbol of chaos. And so when John is writing revelation and saying, 
you know, this, this chaos of the enemies of God are, are going to rise up and God's going to have victory over them. But he uses the same symbols, doesn't he? Now, this is a red dragon and it has seven heads and it's coming out of the sea and it represents that chaos that fights against God. And it's the enemy of God. And, um, you know, excuse me, like I said, multiple interpretations, um, you know, it, it could be, a, it, you know, I understand it as a kingdom and the heads as as he describes later, the heads are different kings and the they represent different kings of that empire. Um, but the point is, is the enemies of God are described as the multi-headed sea dragon of chaos. Again, what is what happens to Revelation? God destroys that monster and uh, ultimately has his victory over him. So wow. even in the New Testament, they're drawing on that imagery of Leviathan. And uh, it's just a real powerful... Yeah, it's just a powerful image. It's it's become since I started writing my novel. I, I first started writing my novels, you know, like 13 years ago with Noah Primeval was my first novel, and you can check those out. Start start with Noah Primeval, and then you'll go on from there. But I I brought Leviathan into the story, and you know, I draw him as a spiritual creature. He's kind of in the spiritual realm, but sometimes he manifests in the physical realm. You know, um, it's my creative license, um, but he does represent that chaos so even though you can you can defeat him in my stories he does return and he ends up being in all my novels because he does embody he incarnates that chaos that the people of god are fighting so he ends up being one of my most common characters throughout the whole series and he ended up being probably my favorite image my favorite creative symbol in the whole bible because of this interesting motif that that goes along with him and how how he represents that that thing that uh let's put it this way the primal battle between order and chaos which is a very primal uh, motif that we see in all religions and i think that it it really embodies yeah one of the foundational understandings of god in this world Wow. I mean, we see it every day, right? Good first, evil, and wow. So let me ask you a question. Like, when you write these books, do you, not that they're, not that God directs you to write them, but do you feel his presence when you're writing them at all? Yes. I And I do feel that my writing is an act of worship. Like, when I'm writing, I feel like I'm worshiping God. And I pray and I ask God, you know, guide my creativity and may it honor you because I don't want to dishonor him. Um, but also God gave us creative imaginations and, uh, you know, like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien would talk about, it's a sacred imagination. I just try to honor him and stay true to the Bible. But when I'm, you know, I'm filling in the in-between, um, I, I just try to be consistent with what, with the Bible, you know, and, you know, cause there's a lot of things in the Bible. We don't know. Well, how did that get that way? Well, I try to give an explanation of how it got that way in a way that would be consistent. And so at least that's what I try to do. And I, you know, and I do because I deal, there's a lot of supernatural in my novels. So I have the archangels show up and they're battling the demonic entities of the watchers throughout the series. So it's a very supernatural spiritual warfare motif. Um, if you like that kind of thing, you're going to love this, but it's not just this simplistic, um, like we used to hear in the old days about, you know, 
uh, a demon of lust, you know, or a demon of greed possessed him. And, you know, no, it's, it's a much higher order notion in the Bible that uh, there are, uh, God gave over the Gentile nations who would not worship him. He gave them over to be under the authority of these fallen sons of God who were angelic beings who fell from heaven and they were evil. And he gave them over to those beings, which is why these, all the pagan nations worshiped pagan gods, right? And so he gives them over to their sin and they rule over them. And so this is why in the Bible, there's this notion, you know, you see it in, in Daniel 10, where, you know, the prince of Persia versus the prince of Greece, the, the idea was in the Bible that when that there were spiritual principalities and authorities over earthly principalities and authorities. So when there was a battle on earth, there was a battle in heaven. So in, in the book of Daniel, when you read in Daniel 10, where you read about the prince of Persia fighting the prince of Greece, well, what was going on historically at that time was her, uh, Greece was coming down historically to battle with Persia in, in the armies of the Macedonian armies of Alexander the Great, ultimately. And that was that was the earthly war that was taking place. And Daniel's saying it's like, well, there's a principal, there's a, a spiritual prince and a, of Persia and Greece that are also fighting at the same time, if that makes sense. So that yep. that that motif of spiritual warfare with these high generals and watchers and just I found it it's in the Bible and it blew my mind and it was so fascinating. I thought I got to tell these stories because this is really interesting. And so I have to speculate a little because obviously, like I said, the Bible only pulls back the curtain once or a few times, right? And it tells us in yeah. Daniel 10 or um, Psalm, Psalm 82, you know, where it talks about these, these, these beings who are in authority, these spiritual beings that are in authority. I find that so interesting that I wanted to try to say, okay, well then what, how, how do, how does the, the thread of the Bible uh, uh, how does this thread in the Bible play itself out? What is it? What might it look like in the spiritual realm? So, by necessity, I'm I'm trying to depict the spiritual realm and how it interacts with our earthly realm. So, obviously, there's going to be some uh, a lot of creative license there because you know there's a lot that the Bible doesn't show us, and uh, I'm trying to be consistent with what it does show us, and that's sort of the premise of the whole series. So, if you like those kind of spiritual warfare uh, novels that are also like I say, true to the Bible. I think I think you'll love Chronicles of the Nephilim. That's where it all begins. And then the other series sort of branch off out of that. Yeah. I think Christians, like, I know some Christians might hear this stuff and they might shy away from it, but I truly think Christians need to, like the stuff you're writing about, even though you said like you keep it along the Bible, you got to bring stuff into it. But I think it's good for Christians to understand this other realm like that is going on that I believe that we're in a spiritual battle. These, these battles are taking place and people need to recognize the supernatural side of things. Yeah. So I think yeah. you, these books, um, people should go out and get them, go out in and buy Brian Godawa's books. He just gave a great presentation and I'm going to, I'm going to get the books the time to find to read them. That's a little hard, but <laughs> hey, look, you know, if you're if you're not as into fiction, because I also I've discovered this, a lot of Christians, they aren't as into fiction, then buy the theology books. Buy Leviathan and Behemoth. That's a theology book. Or you could get my when God, uh, I'm sorry, when giants were upon the earth. 
And that's the book that gives all the research, the Bible research that I uh, based my novels on. And maybe if you read the Bible research, you'll get inspired and you'll get interested to read the novels too, but you don't have to read the novels. You can just buy my uh, theology books as well. And, you know, you can find them all just by, you know, Brian Godow has an author page on Amazon. All the books are there. So you can find that and, and check out which ones you like. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm going to leave you with one more question. Do you believe the fallen angels and the Nephilim, do you think they're still running things? No, I do not. You don't? I believe. You, th you yeah. think they're all gone? Yes. And, and, and Well, I do believe they're, they're, they're demonic entities and such. But my book, Psalm 82, I wrote a book on this, the theology of it, and explains okay. why. But the base, in Psalm 82, basically it, what it says is that uh, when Jesus, when Messiah came, Jesus, Messiah came, he disinherited all those principalities and powers that were in the heavens, right? I said they were over, they were authorities over. Well, when Christ came and resurrected and ascended to heaven, he became king over the earth. So he disinherited all those authorities and he became the king over all the nations. That's what the Bible says, literally, right? And so he actually judged them and came. And it's the, the, it's the reason why the gospel draws people from where? Every tribe, tongue, nation. Because they used to be in bondage to these, these um, sons of God, these fallen watchers, these fallen beings, right? But when the gospel came, Jesus broke all that. And, and now that's why people can come from every tribe and nation into the kingdom of God, because the gospel itself destroys the authority that those, those spirit beings had over the nations. That's my, that's in a nutshell, that's what I argue, but I, I draw it from scriptures and, you know, get my book, Psalm, Psalm 82, and, it, and it'll explain that for you. Thank you so much, everyone. Brian Gadawa, support him. Go buy his books. Thank you for your time. I appreciate you. God bless you. Have a good night. Thank you, man. Thank you, Brian. There is no distance that cannot be covered over and over. You're not defenseless. I'll be your shelter, I'll be your armor I hear you whisper underneath your breath I hear your SOS, your SOS I hear you.